All right, welcome everybody. Revelation chapter 11, part five. The most difficult chapter in the book of Revelation. Uh, the most difficult chapter in the Bible. <laughs> Maybe not, but it is, it is really taxing uh, to try to get to what is going on. Uh, so, because of all the different views of chapter 11. But let's begin with a word of prayer. We'll sing the word of God, set the music, and... Uh, Sit in silence for a minute. When we come back, we'll pick it up and talk about this chapter. All right. Lord, we, uh, we pause. We thank you and uh, lay all things at your feet, problems and uh, situations, concerns. We need your support. We need to recognize, you, you give it. We need to recognize it and your hand in our lives. We uh, pray that you will sustain us by your spirit today as we uh, consider more content from the book of Revelation and uh, move ourselves through it. And uh, we pray for the technical side and our volunteers. We pray for people struggling uh, in the faith and with life and uh, help us to be of assistance. That the, that the religion is not just about us. It's about taking it and then serving others uh, by your spirit and not by religion and uh, so we just pray that we're helping to equip ourselves, even with a study that's so heavy as this. Uh, so be with us now and help us to reflect upon your words set to music. In Jesus' name, amen. Show me your ways, O oh Lord. Teach me your path. God of my salvation. 
Use you. 
Okay, Mike? Okay, good. Uh, midst of Revelation 11, and we come to the truly unanswerable question as to the identity of the two witnesses that are first mentioned in verse 3. Thus far, we have the theory that holds most water, um, uh, that uh, has 22 factors that the two witnesses have to meet, and uh, if we're going to take the scripture at, at, at face value, that they should meet these things. And uh, the theory that holds most water is what Steve presented to us, his way of uh, describing how he uh, uh, came up with this was that every now and then even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. But uh, he came up with the uh, thought that perhaps we are not looking at a literal two human being, different prophet witnesses, uh, but the scripture is talking about the written word and the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And, that, and when we held that up to scrutiny and we tested the two witnesses against the 22 factors, that one has statistically held up better than some of the other ones that are Moses and Elijah and some of the other things that we've looked at. So we ended last week at verse 6. It says, these, talking about the witnesses, have the power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all the plagues as often as they will. And we said that uh, looking at the word of God and the word made flesh, that power was there, so that fit. And we're going to move now on to uh, verses 7 through 13. Now, it starts to get tough for that theory to hold water. And we'll see that as we move forward. 
Let's read those verses. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up here. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth part of the city fell and in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to God of heaven. So those are the, first, those are the verses we will cover today. Go back to verse 8 with me, where admittedly 8 through 12 make the idea that the word of God made flesh and the word, written word, uh, it's difficult to assign them as the two persons when we read some of the language that is put here. Don Preston, a fulfillment scholar who's all over the internet and he teaches fulfillment prophecy of the Bible. He, as we mentioned last week, explains that his theory is there were two witnesses and they certainly fulfilled all 22 categories as they walk the earth. We just don't know their names. That's how he puts it. That we have all the evidences piling up around us for the end being then, uh, and even, I mean, even when we just sang that song, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it's, it's so, it takes us to the text of the Bible that Jesus was standing there before he was gonna be crucified and he says, you know, how long I've tried to gather you as a chick, as a hen would gather her chicks under her wings. And the reason that he couldn't gather them is because they weren't willing for those Calvinists who say God forces people to be willing or not. I mean, Jerusalem was not willing to be gathered by the mother hen. And um, so much is just said in that about what we are reading in the scripture, that this is Jesus mourning over the city and the priesthood and the temple and the Jews and the tribes. And, and the, all of that New Testament gospels were about him reaching to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and how he was telling them, this is gonna come down so badly and you wouldn't listen to me. And then the apostles are said, told, go out into all Judea and reach the far reaches of Judea as far as you can and tell them, repent now, receive the Messiah uh, uh, from the house of David so that you can escape the coming judgment. And now here in Revelation, the final book of the, of, of the whole New Testament, even chronologically, they think, maybe John's were before or after. But here is, to the seven churches, let me tell you something, I'm coming quickly. And what I had been so mournful over Jerusalem is about to happen. And here are the signs, and now we've got to the point where one of the signs are there's gonna be two witnesses who are going to do all these things. 
So we also have to remember as we study Revelation, the, the tool, the literary tool of recapitulation, which is tough for us uh, English-speaking uh, Western civilization people because we understand recapitulation when we watch a movie that starts off with a flashback or that isn't in chronological order and we finally understand at the end when all the elements come together. Well, the book of Revelation is full of recapitulation and where we want to read it as a chronological uh, read of events that were going to happen or in the future for us or had happened as preterists, um, you can't really read it that way. And if you do, you get yourself into a whole bunch of trouble. So recapitulation is a literary device. And maybe the best way to help you understand that is let's suppose that an angel came to you from God and said, I'm going to show you your life. And I want you to write down what I show you as it comes. So, you know, you get out your pen and paper and, and the angel shows you uh, your wedding day. And then the angel shows you um, your first day of school as a kindergartner. And then shows you giving your wife or yourself uh, or your you're the husband of the child giving birth. It's your birth of your first child. And then the angel shows you graduating from college. These are all, in, they're all events in your life that the angel's given you, but they're not in chronological order. It started with your wedding day, but then it goes back to when you first had the first day of school. And we try to say, okay, well, what this means this in an orderly fashion. That's Western thinking, but Eastern thinking is these are just events. And then you'd say, well, why were they all shown to me? Well, they're all first events. Your first marriage, your first child, the first time you went to school, the first time you graduated. You don't see them as being first events. We try to think of them having a chronology when in reality what they are are just events that have a connection in some other way than chronology. So when you read the book of Revelation and we read about the two witnesses doing certain things, they may or may not be in any chronological order. They just may be things that will happen from the lives of the two witnesses. So that makes the study uh, even more uh, difficult. So let's go to verse 8. Speaking of the uh, two witnesses, and by the way, for those of you who don't join us for milk, uh, witnessing, testifying, witnessing, uh, the same Latin connection, but back in the day, did you know a woman could not testify or be a witness? It was all males. Why? The root word for testify uh, it comes from the same root word for testicle. And, and when you were going to testify of something, that you would cup the testicles with the left hand and you would raise your arm and you would swear by those things and their, li their life-givingness that you were telling the truth. That's where we get testify and, t and, and, and that's the connection. So here we have in their, that their dead bodies of these witnesses, of these two males, they're, they're the ancient thinking of these witnesses will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually, do you notice that word there? Which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So we know where our Lord was crucified. We know it was on the outskirts of town in Judea, in Jerusalem. So we know regardless of our eschatological position, whether you're a futurist or a preterist or amillennialist or any sort of way you're looking at it, 
that these things of the witnesses are to occur in Jerusalem. That is a given, okay? Remember that, it's gonna take us to get all the way to the end here of today's talk to show you how another evidence, how it couldn't be futuristic, okay? But remember, these guys are going to lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Gomorrah, excuse me, Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. We have to read a lot into our stance that it's the word made flesh and the word written in ink for them to lie in the street of the great city. We could say they were the, the word of God was trampled underfoot. We could say Jesus lied in the street, so to speak, from the cross. That was a symbol, symbolism. We could stretch a little bit and go with that. But now I have to go backward to that theory that was given to us of Jesus Christ and Jesus, the son of Ananus. Because both of them died in Jerusalem. And we know that during the Roman siege, the people of Jerusalem, in other words, Jerusalem was packed with people at the time of the Passover. And it was during the time of the Passover, according to Josephus, that Yeshua, the son of Ananus, was killed. So he was killed at the time of Passover when Jerusalem was packed with people. That's when the Roman siege began, five-month siege upon it. And we know that during that siege, they didn't bury people. Um, and so lying in the streets for three and a half days is very easy to understand how that could have happened with many people, let alone someone who had been bothering uh, the people of Jerusalem the whole time by screaming, whoa, whoa, to Jerusalem, whoa, 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 Jerusalem. For seven years, that's what Jesus, the son of Ananus, did, according to Josephus. Whoa, whoa, to Jerusalem, seven years, never got hoarse, was beat for it, everything else. And then on Passover, he's killed. The, uh, the thought is both he and Jerusalem and Jesus or just him laid in the streets. They didn't bury. They didn't have places. They didn't have time or inclination. They didn't have... People were just dying right and left, and so they just let them lay there and rot. That could be how the corpses were laying in the streets. Uh, the fact that Jesus, the son of Ananus, could have been the second witness uh, suggests that they may have thought of him as a false prophet. Remember, he was crying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Deuteronomy says a false prophet will be put to death. He dies, they may have considered, yeah, see what happens to you, Jesus, son of Ananus? You've been killed, you get to die. We're not gonna even bury you. We don't care enough about you. There's another theory as to why he uh, laid dead in the street. Seen as a false prophet, uh, he would have been refused the honor of a burial. Then we have to ignore that John wrote when it comes to the word and or made flesh and the word made ink, when he says their dead bodies would lie in the streets of Jerusalem, as if to, it almost implies together they would die. This is Don Preston's idea that there was two actual guys, they died, they laid, they were resurrected and came back. Uh, remember, Revelation was written and given to seven churches in Asia Minor. This is what Jesus tells John. This is a revelation to the seven churches. Write it, have it copied, give it to them. 
So they have possession of this revelation and they read about these two witnesses in their day, it would have been very easy for them in close proximity to hear about two prophets who were roaming through the streets and who fulfilled these things. And so to them, it wouldn't have been a big jump for them to understand who their identity was. And of course, if that was true and then the church was taken up, they wouldn't have left a record of who those two guys were. They would have been gone, it would have been over. So there, there'd be no reason that we would have knowledge of who the two prophets were unless Josephus was to have left it for us. Just a thought. So then we read that Jerusalem is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. This is really interesting when you think about it. Jerusalem, city of David, city of peace, God's holy city. I mean, Salem, uh, like Shalom, Salem is a, a form of peace. It's supposed to be a city of peace and yet here it's spiritually being referred to as Sodom and Egypt, two cities that are polar opposites of what Jerusalem is supposed to be. But, it, but because the writer writes spiritually Sodom and spiritually Egypt, we get an idea of the condition of Jerusalem at that time. Uh, on the surface and pointing to the obvious, what destroyed Sodom? Fire came down from heaven. And in the book of Revelation, we are seeing that what is coming down upon Jerusalem in 70 AD to wipe it out? Fire coming down from heaven, catapults shooting fiery balls through and to destroy things and hit the city and the scorched earth that the Romans would do as we've talked about that, wrecking all uh, harvests and destroying food stuffs, fire everywhere destroying that city. So uh, we know that there's a parallel there. Then there's a scholar named John Noe He's an expert on fulfillment prophecy, and he points out that Jerusalem is the only city in the Bible that is simultaneously referred to in the Old Testament as Sodom. And so if you look to Deuteronomy 32, 32, it says, for, speaking of Jerusalem, for their vine is the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah, and their grapes are grapes of gall, and clusters are bitter. The prophet Isaiah, in the very first chapter of Isaiah, says, hear the word of Lord, you rulers of Sodom. This was talking to the rulers of Jerusalem. They are spiritually, not literally, but spiritually Sodom. And then in chapter 16, if you want to give yourself interesting read of Ezekiel, read that, and all through that parallels to uh, Jerusalem being Sodom are made known. So, and of course, we know from the account of Josephus that Jerusalem in, from 60 AD, especially from 66 AD to 70 AD, that window of time, that place was like Sodom. I mean, men were dressing up as women. They were having uh, relationships with other men as if they were women. And, and then they were being murdered during the act. There was Josephus, I've read it before, I'm not gonna read it again, so like this long paragraph description of what went on in the city walls while they were in there and how far they had fallen from the law of God. So it literally became Sodom. And so when John describes Jerusalem as spiritual Sodom, it makes a lot of sense. Then we come to that other uh, title that's given, that's Egypt, spiritually Egypt. And there is no city more opposite even Sodom isn't more opposite than Jerusalem, than Egypt. Uh, Egypt is always in scripture a symbol of bondage and a symbol of sin. 
And that's why the children of Israel, they were in Egypt and they were under the bondage, the taskmasters of the Pharaoh and all the Egyptians until Moses came forward and said, let my people go. And then he leads them out of bondage and they cross the Jordan River and enter into the promised land. That's all a type and symbol for the Christian walk. It's all a picture for, same with us, we're in bondage to sin. We're, uh, we're under taskmasters of our flesh. They're forcing us to, to work and labor and, and be uh, in their care. Uh, Moses, a type for Christ, comes in. He leads us out. And we follow Jesus into, over through the, the Jordan River and ba- as an em- emblem of baptism. And uh, we come back out into the land of promise in, and, and we start to fight our battles in the spirit. Which you'll notice when they enter the promised land, the children of Israel, they are uh, fighting enemies constantly. And that it's not, that's not a picture of heaven. That's not a picture of becoming a Christian, coming out of bondage, following Jesus, and then entering into a land of relaxation. What it is, it's we enter into a land where our flesh is at warfare with our will for God. God is calling us, our flesh is calling us, and we enter into the promised land led by Joshua, Jesus. Moses died, Joshua leads them into the promised land, and we're fighting enemies. We are putting enemies to death. Critics of the Bible will, will say, you know, in the Old Testament, they used to go and they'd take these cities and they would kill women and children and all the animals. How barbaric is that? It's a picture and a type for when you become a Christian and you enter into your walk and you're freed from the bondage of Egypt and you enter into the walk of being led into the wilderness and then into the promised land by Jesus, that's when the warfare begins. That's when you decide to trust God to help you overcome yourself or you lose, you know, and that's exactly what happened to the nation of Israel. And, 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 and so that's what the whole, all the picture and type is about. So when uh, Jerusalem is called spiritual Egypt, what essentially all that is being said is you have gone back to the bondage of sin. You were once led out as a people from Egypt and you have entered back into it in your own city. You're spiritually Egypt now. It's remarkable stuff. All the way back in Deuteronomy 28, Moses wrote prophetically first about their captivity and then I believe about the final destruction. Now, if you want to turn to it, uh, Deuteronomy 28, 58, and I'm gonna read a few verses. Listen to the language Moses uses all the way back talking about this. God says through Moses to the nation of Israel, if you will not observe and do all the words of the law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear the glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful and thy plagues of thy seed, even great plagues and of long continuance and sore sickness and of long continuance. Moreover, he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt, which thou wast afraid, and they will cleave unto you. Also every sickness and every plague, which is not, which is not written in the book of the law, them will the Lord bring upon thee, and thou will be destroyed. And you shall be few left in number, whereas you were the stars of the heaven for the multitude, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord, you'll be few in number. 
And now it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to naught, and you shall be plucked off from the face of the land wherever you go to possess it. So that was a promise to, through Moses to the nation of Israel. That's being fulfilled here in Revelation to the nation of Israel, Jerusalem, who spiritually Sodom and Egypt. You have not, and you have been, you've been given every chance under the sun. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers a chick under her wings. But you weren't willing. You weren't willing. And so all the plagues that fell upon Egypt are now going to fall upon you. And even worse is what that prophecy says there in Deuteronomy. Well, obviously Israel had been consummately disobedient at this point in the New Testament. Uh, to the point, they not only turned against the true meaning of the law, they killed the Messiah. The promised Messiah, they had him put to death. And so we are reading the result of God administering through the seven trumpets, through the seven vials, through the seven seals, we are witnessing the plagues of Egypt being poured out upon them as Moses promised back in Deuteronomy. Um, each bowl and trumpet representing one of the plagues. So go back, to, I mean, in verse nine, uh, in Revelation chapter 11, it says, for three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial, okay? So I know from a futurist perspective, which I once adhered to and taught, that the whole idea was we're gonna be over here in America and you know, we'll be water skiing and we'll be going to the mall and, and things. Things will be tough, but we're gonna hear about two people who are gonna be laying in the streets of Jerusalem and we're gonna hear that their bodies have been laying there for three and a half days. That's what we'll hear about. And, and that we're gonna know, wow, the witnesses, that's what's going on and we'll be keyed in, we'll be able to see that, right? And, but here it says that every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze upon the bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. I'm gonna jump a bit around as we try to talk about what these things could mean because we don't have definitive answers for what they do mean, no matter how much we try, but we can try to do, assess some of the information. During the Passover in 70 AD, as I said, Jerusalem was swarmed with pilgrims from all over the Gehei, which is translated earth in the King James. And that again was when Rome came in on its attack. That's how many Jews were killed at that time. They came in under the law to observe the day, Passover, and that's when the wipeout took place. As a consequence, those thousands, really a million, 100,000 Jews were killed. They were trapped inside this city. Perhaps the death of the word occurred that we were talking about before as a theory because they were the oracles of the word. The Jews were the ones who brought the word forward for us. That's one of the things Paul says they've done for us is they brought forward the prophet, they brought forth the Messiah, and they brought forth the word of God for us in the Old Testament. And so perhaps them being wiped out was the way the word is being trampled and put to death. So that's something to consider the way to see it. Um, 
Or perhaps it was the fact that according to Josephus, it was during the Passover that Jesus, the son of Ananus, Jesus, the son of Ananus, was, was killed and left, his body was left out to fulfill that one of those 22 um, indicators. So he's killed and he's laid out there and everybody who had come from afar, every people, tribe, nation, language, rejoiced over the death of this guy. And I know this is a stretch, I'm not saying it's gospel, but they rejoiced over his death because just as they had rejoiced over Christ's death as Jews, seeing that he was put to death. Um, and they could have rejoiced over Ananus, the son of Ananus' death, because he was for seven years screaming, whoa, 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 to Jerusalem, and no one could shut him up. Every time there was a crowd, that's what he did. And so he could fill that second role of another witness. Um, did the world rejoice over Jesus' death? Now, there's a passage where Jesus himself says in Scripture that the world would. Um, it's in John 16, 20. Jesus says uh, to his disciples, who are going to be sad because he's killed, truly, truly, I say unto you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Most of the commentators and scholars I consulted not most, every one of them that I consulted, and it's not exhaustive, but they all said the world hates Jesus. The world has rejoiced over his death. And that's why Jesus said that. He says to his apostles, you're gonna weep and lament, but the world is gonna rejoice. I don't see it as saying that. And this is part of my problem when I read the scripture, and that's why we get into such troubles, because I just don't see the same things that they see. I don't think the world cares that Jesus died. I don't think the world rejoiced at all. So I checked the Greek, is it world here? And it is, it's cosmos. It's not gehe, it's not uh, oikomenia, it's cosmos. So it doesn't just mean the geography will rejoice that I'm dead. He's saying the entire world will rejoice that I'm dead. Perhaps the fact that the earth is depicted rejoicing over his death and the two witnesses, it's a subtle hint that Jesus was one of these witnesses and they're rejoicing over his death and that he fulfills that description of the 22 descriptions. Jesus' death, the world uh, rejoicing over it, sending gifts because of it. When does the world rejoice over Jesus and send gifts? Well, if he's one of those witnesses and he's fulfilling this, and what he says in John 16, 20 is true, the world will rejoice over my death, I can think of Christmas and Easter. And that's when gifts are being sent. And when, we, when Jesus said the world's gonna rejoice over me and every commentator says that means they're gonna be saying, he's dead, he's dead, ha, 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 we're so glad. I think they're saying rejoice, he saved us. I don't see it the, the, in the negative way that people interpret that passage. He's saying, you apostles, you know me personally, you're gonna weep and lament over this, but the world will rejoice because of the good news. And then the next line says, and they'll send gifts to each other. I don't have any proof anywhere from the historical record that I could find that, about this gift giving in the face of dead witnesses. But, and I know I'm stretching here, this is a stretch. But to me, if we're going to look at evidence that the world rejoices over Jesus' death and that gifts will be given to each other over it, I see that not as a negative thing, but as something that's indicative that they understand what he did for us. Could be wrong, totally always. And that's the thing about chapter 11 is everyone who teaches it could be wrong, always. But we gotta get through it 
because the rest of the stuff is more on the nose and we can understand it. So, where the apostles were going to weep and lament, the world at large, the cosmos again, would rejoice because he saved it and, and, uh, and then proceed forward and give gifts. Listen to this part of the prophecy again so the Spirit can move you to new understanding that might differ with me. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over these witnesses and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. Now, I have to admit that added line throws everything I just said into chaos. I mean, I don't think the world's rejoicing on Christmas Day and Easter and sending each other gifts happily over Jesus' death because he had tormented the earth upon which they live. But that is, so that takes us again away from that theory. This is what happens. As you study it and you get information, you say, okay, that's working. That place says, and then suddenly you get to another line and say, okay, that one doesn't work. And that, it makes it so hard to teach because there's all these variables you have to keep adding in. And if you're gonna be honest, and you gotta be honest when you're teaching this book, you cannot make, you cannot make a um, superstructure out of everything that we have. You just can't. So we're, we're, we're scrambling in the dark. Uh, but admittedly, that last line, because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth, it seems to suggest what Don Preston says, that there was a pair back in the day, or as a futurist would say, there is a pair we're looking for in the future who will be seen as prophets. They will torment the earth with their prophecies and, and voices. They will be put to death. They will literally lie in the streets three and a half days. And people will actually send gifts to each other over the hatred they had for them tormenting them for that amount of time. Either 70 AD or out in the future. Okay? Verse 11 and 12 take us deeper into our difficulties. Sorry for being the bearer of good news here. If you are a preterist, as they say, they make it really hard. <laughs> We've got to be frank. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Before I say anything, remember when it comes to the two witnesses, we have always said that though there are 22 qualifiers, one witness could fulfill 21 of them and the other witness could fulfill one of them and that's how the two are completing the, the list of 22. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the two witnesses will have this happen to each of them and that's why we're able to take Jesus, for instance, and know that he did what uh, these verses said, rose from the uh, grave, et cetera, et cetera. And we could say that's fulfilled through Christ. Um, so just know that. But let's look at the Greek really quickly and the literal translations. I checked it and the term for great fear, phobos, that it speaks of here in Revelation at the sight of these two witnesses coming up is the same Greek tense and word when Jesus was seen having resurrected from the grave. 
So we have a biblical support that when Jesus rose from the grave, they responded with that fear, Fabas, and that what Revelation is saying is that one of the, when these witnesses rise, when the Spirit of God comes back into them from the, and stand on their own two feet, great fear, it's the same thing. So if we're going to use the Bible to give us our information of how to interpret what these things mean, what we have is upon a resurrection, we have great fear coming upon people in Matthew, and that would fulfill what is being described here in Revelation. But after three and a half days, the bre a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and struck and terror struck those who saw them. That's that Phobos that we were talking about. If this is a description of Jesus Christ and he fulfilled it for both the witnesses, we could suggest that this event was met through Christ and that he is getting closer to being one of the witnesses for sure. But statements, they stood on their own two feet troubles me if we're talking about the two having to fulfill this because uh, it seems to say that the two would be standing on their own two feet says to me in some ways that it's going to be these pairs again. So it moves away from Jesus representing the witnesses to there being actually two and we have to go back and forth with that again. It makes the idea of the word made flesh and the word made ink being the two witnesses very difficult because the word made ink doesn't have two feet to stand upon. So that makes that theory more difficult. I really want to believe the issue to the two witnesses as a confirmed preterist, full preterist. I want to believe there is an answer here uh, and there's something tangible to give people to assure them that this isn't something that's a deal breaker. I don't think it should ever be a deal breaker, but there is nothing tangible upon which we can stand on this one. Uh, I, so we have to conclude honestly with this part of Revelation. It's either happened through two actual witnesses, one of them could have been Jesus, or that it will happen through two future actual witnesses. Um, whether, whoever they are, Moses and Elijah, whoever those other ones were that we've talked about in the past weeks. It is one point of contention in the book of Revelation I can't feel good about answering with a hypothesis that stands on all four legs. The rest of it that we've talked about, I've had no problem. This is so historical. I mean, the descriptions in Revelation are almost like verbatim taken out of the historical record of Josephus and Tacitus and, and other uh, historians. And when Revelation says this will happen, I mean, we have that very description coming out of history. But the two witnesses, so just I'm saying all this for those of you who have believed in the preterist position. If you get into a discussion with someone and you hear them say, well, let's talk about the two witnesses, you might as well just wave the white flag. You might as well just say, I can't, I can't go to battle with you on that one. You won. Even though you believe it's someone in the future, I can't prove that one okay. That one you win. Just give it to them. Prove the other 100 points, but just give them the two witness ones because there's nothing we can, can do. And that's why Don Preston, an expert in this field, says there had to have been two guys then. All the rest of the information holds up, but this one we just don't know. Verse 12, then they, the two witnesses, heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Unfortunately, preterists will take this passage and say, oh, well, obviously this is Jesus. 
You know, he was taken up in a cloud after he was resurrected. They had fear of his resurrection. And, and, uh, and, and you know, come up here, he went up. And that is just stretching and extrapolating to make your argument sound. Look at, first of all, we didn't have any voice say to Jesus, come up here. Second of all, uh, he went up into the cloud, true. That's one thing. Jesus disappeared in the cloud. This says they went up into, in a cloud. While their enemies looked on, Jesus' apostles were looking on. So there's a very different approach here. You cannot say this was fulfilled by Jesus. Even though there's similarities, you're not being intellectually honest. So that one don't try to bring over and try to use because it doesn't work. So uh, just to let you know though, it says, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. There are some Bible translations where it's translated and John saying, and I heard a voice saying to them, come up here. Not that it matters, but you can look at your Bible translation and see what it says. It probably says they, and the voice said to them. But some of them says, John saying, it came to me, and I heard the voice say for them to come up there. Now, one couple last things. According to the New Testament, if we read Paul's words about resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, at verse 52, he says, for the last trumpet will sound, okay, which is the seventh seal, by the way, that's the seventh trumpet. That's what we are reading about now in chapter 11. We're reading about this last trumpet that Paul described back in 1 Corinthians 15. And the dead will be raised imperishable at this trumpet. So, we don't know if those two witnesses now are representing a collective, and we don't know if those, uh, those guys are being resurrected along with others. We don't know, because there is, but there's a parallel. We're studying two witnesses who are going to be resurrected here in Revelation, and back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talked about how at the last trump, which is where we're at in our study of Revelation, it will sound and they will be raised to life. So there could be some connection there between what's going on. Getting back to the theory of Jesus, son of Ananas, he was killed, according to Josephus' record, during the seventh trumpet of Revelation. That's when he was killed. So we might be forced to admit that the seventh trumpet is the last trumpet mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, when the resurrection is supposed to have, been, have to occurred. He's killed three and a half days later. He rises and he could have fit that bill. So we have to go back to him, that theory. Verse 12 may also be suggesting that the two witnesses are just Jesus Christ himself, but I don't know. The reason I say that is Acts chapter one, verses nine through 11. Listen to how Jesus is described. I have to include this. I don't believe it. I think it's stretching, but this is what it says about Jesus. And after he, Jesus, said this, he, Jesus, was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven, meaning through the air. And we have talked about how that has been manifestly supported by historical secular documents of when Jerusalem was being destroyed, the things that are happening in the air. So in the least, the resurrection of the two witnesses is a mirror 
of the ascension of Christ into the heavens of Acts chapter one, verses nine through 11. And perhaps again, I'm sorry to back, bounce back and forth between the theories, but perhaps this implies that the two witnesses uh, are going to just be replicating what happened with Jesus Christ himself. All right. So if I was to be asked right now, how do you explain the two witnesses in order of plausibility in relation to all we have discussed over these past five weeks, I would say the following. The abundance of other information relative to the second coming points so strongly to all of it occurring during the destruction of Jerusalem, 66 to 70 AD, I would suggest that there were two witnesses during that time that fulfilled everything written about them. That concurs with Don Preston's stance. Secondly, if this is true and there were two witnesses, they potentially could be any of the following, and I'm gonna place them in order of my, prior, of my belief. Two unknown witnesses we haven't heard of. Jesus and another emanation of Jesus through a man named Jesus, the son of Ananus, representing the two witnesses. Jesus, the word made flesh, and the word made ink. Those are the possibilities I see as fulfilling the most of the 22 or all of the 22, according to our best of knowledge, and I can't say anymore. I will add it into that. It's tacitly understood that I don't think Elijah and Moses are the two witnesses and how that's what most futurists say, and uh, we'll go from there. Verse 13, last verse for today, and at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Did that happen is the question. Uh, an earthquake occurred at the death of Jesus on the cross, uh, Matthew 27, 54. Uh, did an earthquake occur at his resurrection? Because that's when the earthquake occurred with these witnesses. Actually, it did. I didn't even know this. Uh, Matthew 28, 2 says, and behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. So at the resurrection of the witnesses in Revelation, there's an earthquake, and here we have an earthquake associated with the resurrection of Christ. The son of Ananus was killed, we know, uh, when he stood on the wall and said, woe, woe to Jerusalem, after seven years of doing it, and then he said it one last time, and after that he said, and woe, woe to myself, and a boulder sent from a catapult from the Romans took him out, killed him right then and there. And Josephus says when those boulders would hit, it was like an earthquake had hit Jerusalem. So we could have some fulfillment there in Jesus, the son of Ananus, as one of the two witnesses. Uh, because of the weight of the stones and maybe even the weight of the stone being rolled from Jesus' tomb, Scripture describes that as it feeling like an earthquake when it could have just been a geographical shaking for those who were right there instead of a earthquake that shook the whole land. Um, and then earth trembling in scripture is always a picture of God's presence and things being changed up. This is apocalyptic verbiage to help you understand the way a Hebrew would describe things are being changed up because God's spirit is coming and he's merging with sinful man's earth 
things are going to shake. And this is really important. I know you've heard it, but I'm gonna wrap it up with this. In Joel 2, 1 through 10, listen to what it says. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Just listen to the words as it refers to shaking. For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as a morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. There has not ever been like, neither shall there be any more after it. Even to the years of many generations, a fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as a garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so they shall run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of the mountains, they shall leap. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in the battle array. Before their face, the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march like the one on the way. They shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. And they shall walk every one his own path. And when they shall fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded and they shall run to and fro and they shall run upon the wall and they shall climb up the houses and shall enter in the windows thereof and the earth shall quake before them and the heavens shall tremble the sun and the moon shall be dark and the stars shall withdraw their shining and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army for his camp is great and he is strong that executeth his word for the word of the Lord is great and for the day of the Lord the day of the Lord is great and very terrible who can abide it that is Joel giving us apocalyptic language of what it was gonna look like for Babylon and for the nation of Israel and it's prophetic language for us to look at the end of the Jewish age. This language is used all through Revelation and it's used to describe the destruction of the nation of Israel back in the day. So while there was an earthquake at the death and resurrection of the Lord and there appears to have been shaking of the earth through the catapult boulders and things like that, Joel 2, 1 through 10, speaks of the earth shaking when the people of the earth are trembling and the, and, the, and the noise and the cacophony of everything that's happening around them is just uprooting their world. As you know, the idea of things shaking is promised by God as happening at the end of the age of the Jew, that he will take their material religion, all the, all the prophets, their apostles, not apostles, their temple, their temple mount that's so glorious, all of that priesthood, all that genealogy, God says, there's gonna come a time when I'm gonna shake that stuff so badly that it is, nothing is gonna remain standing, nothing. It is going to be taken to the dust so that the only thing that remains uh, will be something that can last forever. Don't ignore this in your study and understanding of the scripture as a Christian. I strongly suggest that whatever the shaking occurred or is yet to occur, however you wanna see it, once it happens, this shaking, of course, I believe it happened 70 AD, but once it happens, nothing will remain uh, shakable. Nothing will be on this earth relative to God that can be moved, shaken, harmed, broken, twisted, nothing, okay? Because God's kingdom, his people, 
his body will be built upon unshakable elements. What is unshakable in this world? Spiritual things. That is what cannot be moved. Uh, from a kingdom established on high, from a kingdom that is in us. All the rest of it, this building can be shaken down to the ground with a single truck, if it was big enough, and, and everything else can fall. The reputation of men fall like dogs at the side of the road. We get attention and, we, and, and glory and we fall like fallen heroes. Nothing in men, nothing in laws, nothing in buildings. There's none of this stuff that will remain in the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of God, only things that cannot be shaken can remain. And that would be faith and love and all kinds of attributes and characteristics. No more men, no more words written in ink, no more earthly empires, no more material destruction coming. If God hasn't shaken yet, it's coming, as the futurists would say, and it's gonna be so radical that it is gonna wipe everything out, all right? When reading the book of Revelation, we must admit that once all these things have happened, and everything has been shaken or will be shaken, there will be no need or purpose for so many things that we look to to remain. No vestige of the old shakable kingdom should remain once God has shaken the former. Here or above, nothing, okay? And I have to read, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying in this passage that we've covered before. You've got to read it with me. It, let me explain it as we go, and we'll wrap it up with this. Talking to Christians, converted Jews, the writer of Hebrews says this. He begins by talking about the old covenant. You have not come to a mountain which can't be touched, that is burning with fire and a black cloud and dark smoke and a violent wind. And to the sound of a horn, that's what they'd blow. What's it, Trumfar or whatever they call that? And the voice of words and hearers which made a request that not a word might be said to them. Meaning, you haven't come to a place that's terrifying. Like the children of Israel did when they came to the, uh, the Mount Sinai and it shook and lightning and darkness and if they touched the mountain, they would die. You haven't come to that place, the writer of Hebrews says. Then, back then, for the order which said, if the mountain is touched even by a beast, the beast should be stoned, seemed hard to them. They were terrified by this voice that was giving them the law. And the law said, if, you're, if your donkey touches this mountain where I'm coming down and giving you the law, that animal should be stoned. That type of thinking terrified them is what the writer says. And the vision was so overpowering that even Moses said, I am shaking and full of fear. Okay, but the writer says, you have come to the mountain of Zion, to the place of the living God. This is what we're looking for in our faith, to be in the place of the living God, not in a shakable place, in the place where the living God is and can abide. He says, you have come to the place of the living God, to the Jerusalem which is in heaven. People who think a new Jerusalem is coming down all this. But to a Jerusalem which is in heaven 
and to an army of angels, which may not be numbered, to the great meeting and the church of the first of those who are named in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of good men made complete, and to Jesus by whom the new agreement has been made between God and man, and to the sign of blood, which says better things than Abel's blood. See that you give ear to his voice that comes to you. That's what he says. For if those whose ears were shut to the voice which came to them on earth did not go free from punishment, children of Israel, if those who were terrified by all this didn't obey his voice and they were punished for it, what chance have we of going free if we give no attention to him whose voice comes from heaven? So look at, take it seriously, understand this relationship is, is, is really important and that if they were punished for not listening to the voice of God that came with shaking mountains and smoke and fire, you are not gonna escape from the voice that comes to you to direct you by the spirit. Now stay with me. Whose voice was the cause of the shaking of the earth? But now, but now he has made an oath saying, now we have a, a, a promise coming forward to us. It's in Haggai chapter four. But now something else is coming, God said. Do you remember some of the things that God has said he'll do? He's gonna write his laws upon our mind. We get the book out, use it as a manual as lawyers. He's gonna write them on our mind. He's gonna write them on our heart. Every neighbor isn't gonna say to the other neighbor, you gotta know this, you gotta know that. There's no more of that. He is going to abide in you a place that cannot be shaken. No matter what you experience in your life, no matter what misery, sorrow, goodness, luxury, you cannot be shaken by those things because the unshakable kingdom is in you, right? But now he has made an oath saying, there will, and Haggai said this, still be one more shaking, not only of the earth, but of heaven. And the words, still one more time, there will be a shaking, make it clear, this is the writer of Hebrews, that there will be a taking away of those things which are shaken as of things which are made so that there may be only those things of which no shaking is possible. God promised this in Haggai. Guess what we're reading about in Revelation? We're reading about the shakedown happening where earthquakes and fires and destruction and witnesses and all that, this is the shakedown happening. And God promises one more time, I'm gonna shake heaven and earth back in Haggai, back in Haggai Old Testament. Now we're out to Revelation and he's doing it. And he says, listen, I can tell you this, that there will be such shaking that the only things that remain cannot be shaken at all. If then we have a kingdom which will never be moved. Now you think about that. How many elements of the kingdom are moved constantly? But if you're part of the kingdom that cannot be moved, let us have grace so that we may give God such worship as is pleasing to him with fear and respect for God is an all-consuming fire. So the writer tells us, listen, man, God back in Haggai said, I'm gonna shake everything up one more time. It's not just gonna be on this earth. It's gonna be heaven and earth is gonna be shaken where the new Jerusalem will abide. That new Jerusalem is where the bride of Christ will be and people will go and they'll be part of that or they won't. And you, if you have the kingdom of God in you by faith and you walk in that unshakable kingdom, not in the shakable ones, nothing can touch you ever, Right? 
That line, yet once, it is a little while and I will shake the heavens, is referring back to God has always shaken from Sinai all the way through, earthquakes and things like that. But in Haggai, he says, one more time, I'm gonna do it. Not just earth, heaven too. The writer of Hebrews borrows from the words of Haggai and he applies them to the Christian economy. He says, you have not come from that kingdom where people were terrified when they touched the mountain and their animals were killed in lightning. You have come to another place, which is what we're part of. And that, that shaking and shakedown is happening in Revelation. The church scene, if the shaking hasn't happened, the future, if the shaking is still going to come in the future, then we have a serious problem as believers. And that problem is the church is a fail. We do not, we are not prepared for him to come and shake everything down. And we're facing ugly times ahead. And we even need apostles to be governing us according to what the New Testament is set up like. We need apostles here to be governing us and forget that whole Mormon thing. God, he's gonna come and he's gonna shake everything again and just look out and then that kingdom will last. However, if we are and have been reading things that have occurred and the shaking did happen and it was all pertinent to the nation of Israel and their age and their people, then that life that we have goes on and will continue to go on. God is no longer at odds with anything anymore. It was done in and through the nation of Israel, the history of the Bible, Jesus Christ, his son, resurrection, death, ascension, and return fulfilled. And we live in an age where we're the recipients of his victory and of his grace and of his death and of his blood. And we walk in liberty, not worried about shakable things anymore because nothing can be shaken within us. We have this kingdom. We don't look to the beggarly elements of men. We look to him, we have that direct relationship, you know? And this is how it has been and how it will be forevermore, unless we destroy ourselves as human race. But all that is, all the necessary stuff has been done, is what I'm trying to say. And the last part says, and the 10th part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men, 7,000, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. So I just wanna wrap up with this 10th part, and I'm not gonna talk about the other part. Uh, the walls of the temple, Herod's temple were finished in 66 AD. This is really ironic. When Jesus was alive, the temple wasn't done. It was too magnificent. They were always working on the things, like the I-15. Work and work and work and it never gets done. And, but in 66 AD, they finished it. And guess what started in 66 AD? The, the demolishment of it. That's when the Romans started getting at with the Jews because they were revolting, they're zealots. And so it finishes in 66 and it starts to lose its life in 66 too. And it's completely taken down. One stone not left upon another in 70, right? It says a 10th part of the city fell, collapsed in verse 13. The temple was one-tenth of the size of Jerusalem. Just understand that. That is from historical and historians doing measurements and looking at it. Not preterists. This is just the historical view of what the temple was. Jerusalem, Josephus recorded a number. A tenth of the city collapsed, was accomplished when the temple uh, fell. Okay? Josephus and Edward Gibbon, he's a historical Christian writer, 
says the temple is one-tenth of the size of the soul. When the temple fell, that could be the fulfillment of this prophecy. Apparently, Jerusalem during the siege in 70 AD was 0.5781 square miles. That's how big Jerusalem was. The circumference of Herod's temple measured by F.J. Hollis was, I won't give you the 929 feet to the south, 1,000 this, but anyway, it was uh, um, an area of 0.05569 square miles. If you look today and you type into uh, Google and you say, how big is the Temple Mount on Mount Moriah? It will give you 0.0556 something square miles. So the Temple Mount hasn't changed. Back in the day of Jesus, 70 AD, when that Temple Mount was destroyed, that represented a tenth of the city, the size of Jerusalem at that time. Check the facts. How big is Jerusalem today? It's 43 square miles big. So Jerusalem being 43 square miles, if we're gonna use that same logic in Revelation and say a 10th part is gonna come down, that would mean the temple would have to be 4.89 square miles big. Do you know how big that would be of a temple? So what we're seeing here in the sizes of a 10th falling when the temple fell and the size of Jerusalem at that time, we have that fulfilled in the preterist view. But if we try to today say a 10th part of the city will fall and it's just Mount Moriah, that doesn't represent a 10th part of the city. Far from it, far more would have had to be destroyed, but the Temple Mount is only so big. So that's just another thing to start bringing us back into some facts that we can look at and can trust to say that the the, uh, scripture and revelation was for them, it was fulfilled, and we can live in the peace that the victory has been had. All right, questions, comments, Wendy. Thank you. Patrico. Oh. Hi, Sean. Hello, Patrick. It's Patrick. Um, so I have something to read, uh, which makes sense but doesn't, and then you can expound. And I'll give you a little context so you don't get confused. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. This is Matthew 16, 24. Take up his cross, follow me, for whatsoever was, whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man that profiteth uh, if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his father with his angels. And then uh, he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there'll be some standing here, there'll be some standing here, which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. How do you say, how do you answer that? I don't know. He says it pretty clear there, doesn't he? But some websites that I looked at, yeah. says that because in the next chapter immediately it talked about his transfiguration uh-huh. they say oh it's talking about his transfiguration and that kingdom was brought forth in acts uh-huh. and throughout the apostles uh yeah doing we answer that i can't answer it now because it's not in my head but we do answer that uh earlier and i do have an answer for that in my notes patrick mm-hmm. but that idea that that he was talking about the transfiguration is absolutely just scrambling at straws to make sense of it he said that there are some of you who will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom 
and I believe he did. They yeah. did. Yeah. So it, you have to really massage and mix things around to make, see it in another way. The most straightforward way is to believe what Jesus said to them at that time. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Patrick. Woo. Anything else? All right, folks, let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for life. Thank you for this book. We're grateful what has come before us and what will come beyond. We, we want to prepare ourselves in all ways to meet you and, and, uh, and be with you. And uh, so we just gather together and we hear the word and we pray for your spirit and guidance to uh, assist us and guide us in our walk. We pray for uh, all the people out there and who watch from home or in the archives or who are here, people who are on this list that are struggling and suffering. We pray for Lisa and uh, Parrish and uh, the devastating news of her uh, cancer completely overriding her entire body. We pray for healing, uh, which would be a, a, a medical miracle. Uh, and if it's not to be, then we pray for understanding and ability to cope with such loss. While I'm talking about that, Lord, of course, we, we don't forget uh, Heidi's family, Rex and, and, and Ty and, and her parents and family. And Lord, uh, it's, it's so easy. The world continues to spin and we go on with our lives. But uh, this was a place where Heidi uh, always showed up and, and contributed and we miss her. But we know she's with you um, fully in that kingdom spiritually. And we pray that we will... Uh, uh, be cognizant of our future place there as well. And bless, continue to bless Ty and, and the Wangsgard family and everybody associated closely with Heidi and, and help them in her loss. We pray for Patrick's brother, Paul, that he will come to know you. Diana, who has the broken leg and such difficulty with health, deteriorating, can barely get around and bless her and help her heart in her depression. The little child, Gracie, uh, comfort her as she is being treated for cancer and uh, help their, her parents to deal with the uh, suffering that she is going through as a little uh, child. And heal her, Lord, we pray. We pray for Annette and Mike healing from cancer and illness. We pray for the Tidwell family at this time of loss of Deborah and anybody else whose name isn't on here who has uh, special needs and call, calling out to you from the heart, Lord. And that's probably most of us. So even if things haven't been said or mentioned on this list, we, we petition you to be with us. Fortify us with your spirit. Uh, send us forward into the world this week and let us be used by you and recognize your presence in our lives. And let us use the gifts that you've bestowed upon us to make our world a better place and that you will receive the glory for that. And we pray for all the social ills and things that upset us. Right now, a church was shot up today, I guess, in Texas. Bunch of deaths, bunch of injuries, another shooting. We pray for them. We pray for the people all over this world who are suffering these different ways. Help us to be a light to them now as we exit. In Jesus' name, amen. For Christ is the end.